0: Between the covers is brought to you in part through the support of Propeller, a magazine of books, music, art, film and life, and its publishing imprint Propeller Books. Visit them on the web at propellermag.com and propellerbooks.com or on Twitter at propellermag. Coming up next is my conversation with Diane Williams about the collected stories of Diane Williams. If you enjoy this episode of Between the Covers, consider becoming a patron of the show. You can find out how at patreon.com slash betweenthecovers. Enjoy today's program. These stories are about the
1: id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical... Effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories, and if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition, was working at a vet and kind of lint-rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself.
0: Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is writer and editor Diane Williams. Williams is the author of eight volumes of short fiction, including This is About the Body, the Mind, the Soul, the World, Time and Fate, Some Sexual Success Stories, Plus Other Stories in Which God Might Choose to Appear, Romancer Erector, Vicky Swanky is a Beauty, and her most recent book, Fine, 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 which was considered a Best Book of the Year by *L* Magazine, the San Francisco Chronicle, the Irish Times, Vulture, and 3AM. From 1985 to 1997, Williams was the publisher and co-editor of Story Quarterly, and in 2000, she founded the literary annual Noon, a magazine described by the New York Times as a beautiful annual that remains staunchly avant-garde in its commitment to work that is oblique, enigmatic, and impossible to ignore. Stories that leave a flashbulb's glow behind the eyes even as they resist sense. In Noon, Williams has published a tribe of sentence-driven writers, everyone from Vicky Now, James Yeh, Gary Lutz, Lydia Davis, Christine Scutt, Sam Lipsight, and Deb Olin-Unferth. Within its pages. Diane Williams is herself known as one of the most important practitioners of the short or sudden or flash fiction forms, but unlike most of the masters in this subgenre, what Diane Williams is doing in these strange short short stories and how she does it leaves otherwise articulate people at a loss for words to describe it. Sam Lipsight calls them fervid endorsements of terrible, joyous life. The New York Times calls them beautiful but impenetrable, defiantly whimsical and weird. Ben Marcus says, there's a Dick and Jane quality to the prose. If Dick and Jane had been forcibly drowned and then brought back to life, maybe starved for a while, induced with madness, but warned at pain of death to conceal it. Laura Sims says Williams' work might be called a postmodernist dream, hilarious and playful, profound, scornful of profundity, serious, scary, light as a feather, sumptuously textured, exasperatingly brief, intricate, simultaneously meaningful, and meaningless. Her work has a serious heart, even while it joyously denies that heart again and again whatever diane williams is up to the arrival this fall of the collected stories of diane williams from soho press the gathering of over 300 new and previously published short fictions over the span of 29 years is a literary event of great import its importance is perhaps best summed up by ben marcus in the introduction is it poetry what she does Is it prose? Is it magic? Is it biological weaponry? Is it real? Is it a sham? Well, yes, to all of these questions. Yes, I think so. Welcome to Between the Covers, Diane Williams. Thank you. So you and Lydia Davis are perhaps the most well-identified American writers with the short, short form. And I know you push back against both um, this question around genre, but also around the very uh, notion of identifying writers this way. And I love what one thing you said in one interview was that it's it's it would be as absurd as looking at painters by the size of their canvases, that we would never consider categorizing two radically different painters just simply because they use the same canvas. But when I look at your magazine Noon and the way people describe Noon, so for instance, Christine Scott says, Noon would strive to publish fiction that from sentence to sentence displayed a writer's no to business as usual prose. And James Yeh says, Noon has been at the forefront of a particular strain of sentence driven American fiction, stories that are swift, smart, urgent, beguiling, and wry. I feel like these descriptions could be descriptions of you as well. And it made me wonder if maybe your literary tribe or the connective tissue between you and the writer's and the writing you admire is sentence-driven fiction. And I wondered what your, your thoughts would be about being categorized in that, in that fashion.
1: I would love to be categorized in that fashion. And probably all the writers that you've named would enjoy hearing that about themselves as well. I think that language is what matters to us and how to make it um, reveal something different than any of us might have ever heard. That would be the the challenge. So why do I put this word in this position? Why do I put this sentence in this position? Why do I put this paragraph in this position? And to be thoughtful about um, the cadence— and syntax and diction is, I think, what um, differentiates all these artists from those who are producing something more predictable and commercial.
0: So when you say the, the sentence cannot be overemphasized, um, tell us more about why, why that's the case in, in your mind versus uh characterization or plot or some other component of of a of a story
1: well you can have grand ideas for what might be suspenseful but it really is those ideas are irrelevant um you might say i'm i'm here's something exciting there's there's a marching band coming down the street and there are uh, uh, there's lots of noise and and we we hear the kettle drum, and um, everybody's wearing red, and and it's dull as dirt. And by the way, someone's going to be murdered. That is not very interesting. So to to um, generate something of power and uh, that has suspense. Uh, it, it, it can't be said the way everybody has heard it before because we all just go to sleep.
0: Hmm. Well, if we put, if we put aside the, this absurd notion of categorizing you with other writers who are unlike you simply because of how many words you choose to use in a story, it still feels like story length is an effect or has certain demands um, or expectations of a reader and when I look at at your career, if we look at your collected stories, your 300-plus stories in almost 800 pages, it does prompt one to step back and sort of assess the totality of it and, and a remarkable faithfulness that you've had over 30 years of writing to a particular length of story. And I wanted to, I wanted to read something that Jory Graham wrote about Jackson Pollock and his use of larger murals. Not to suggest that anyone else's use of larger murals would be like Jackson Pollock's, but maybe just to ask a question about is there something that the short length adds to what you're doing on the sentence level. Because they are painted in such great detail, if you stand far back enough to quote-unquote see the whole painting, its wings as it were, you can't see the actual painting But the minute you get close enough to see the painting, the drip work, you can no longer see the whole canvas, or not with frontal vision. But you pick up the rest of the painting with peripheral vision, which is, of course, a more intuitive part of the seeing apparatus. I think he was doing this consciously, that he was trying to compel us to stand at that difficult juncture of whole and partial visions, subjectivity and objectivity, if you will, or at least view from above and view from middle, historical distance and the present moment and the use of our whole scene mechanism as with Pollock's surface poems with resistant surfaces frustrate frontal vision long enough to compel the awakening of the rest of the reading sensibility, intuition, the body to my mind, to my hope that creates a more whole reader. The dissociated sensibility restored to wholeness by the act of reading. Uh, So I, I, I wondered, I guess, Obviously, we would never compare, like, Diego Rivera to Jackson Pollock simply because they have large canvases. But at the same time, he's employing the large canvas as part of his his effect or maybe the demand on the viewer of the canvas. And I wondered if you had any thoughts about why you might return to this length of story so consistently over your, your life as a writer.
1: Oh, I, As you might guess, I've been asked this question many, many times. Uh, and I've had answers that I've given in different eras of doing this work. When I was first asked the question, what occurred to me to say was when I was growing up, my family members were quite verbally adept, and everybody was quite aggressive as well, and I would say... You might, well, I would describe them as being bullies. At least that's how it felt. And I didn't do very well in this group, and I usually, if I piped up, I would have a stutter uh, beginning, and people would look impatient, and then I would uh, stop speaking. So, But if I did speak, I felt I had to say it quickly and get it over with uh, I did want to contribute, but I was all, always quite insecure, but I didn't feel as if I had any right to speak at length, um, because probably because of the impatience, uh, the impatient looks I saw all around. So that would be what I would have answered had I heard this question uh, the first 10 years of this work. Then I started to think of, all the other reasons, which are probably true, which is that I find it very difficult to write and put anything on the page. And uh, I I don't feel that I have either ideas or a way with words, and I want all of that. I want a richness in my life, whereas my, my... mental life is fairly vacant or filled with habitual thoughts that bring no pleasure or wisdom or comfort so i would have said i write briefly because i'm i'm handicapped but i want i want to i want to address that vacancy i want to address you know the the need to find meaning and 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 vividness and 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 texture for my life the other thing i've answered is uh, when i've tried to respond to this question what i've said is at the very beginning of this work i wanted a lot of answers to a lot of questions that i didn't have and i wanted them right away it felt quite urgent if some of the the questions I had were just about how to live a life, and some of it was just the the, the pressure of uh, feeling, or that was unbearable. And to be astride it, to have to objectify it, to put it on the page was was a consolation and a triumph, and. It needed to happen quickly because the the inward pressure I felt was so great, so that's a, a bundle of answers to the question, and it, it still may not cover it i I do think handicap is is really is is really the gist of it that um, I had a sister who was a genius at, at Uh, telling tales that had suspense and um, great arcs leading to wonderful crises and fabulous resolutions and that was something I, I I just couldn't do. Couldn't do any of it. But I still wanted to write so it's a matter of finding the limited array of tools I had to work with and and praying I could do something, make something out of it, please. Hmm. So
0: in in one interview you said, I have no special concern for brevity. I'd rather view the shape and size of my results as the fruit of a tree. I am like a pear tree. I make pears. I'd be equally delighted to announce I am an acorn. And I love that interview. I love that response. But it made me wonder, and perhaps you've already answered this, if, if before you realized you were a pear tree, if Diane Williams, the pear tree, was producing other fruits or nuts um, until you figured it out, if there was a period of false starts um, where you were writing more conventional or traditional forms. But it sounds to me like this, this way of writing sort of a, a, arose organically out of the, the family situation you found yourself in.
1: No, that's not entirely true. I was working in educational publishing and uh, working on um, elementary school materials for children's age, um, I guess, 6 through 12. And when I stopped that work, I thought, well, I could write mystery novels for little girls. Um, I know a lot about this. So that's what I did. I wrote three mystery novels for little girls and I never had much ambition for them except to complete them. Um, I didn't think they would be great works of art, but I couldn't sell them, and the reason given was that they were too... What was the word? Now I've forgotten, but they... Sweet is likely sufficient. And at that time, what they wanted was so-called problem literature, and my agent sent me a clipping about a little girl who was 12 years old who had committed suicide. And she said, if you could write a, something about a book that bore on that news story, then, then we might have something. So I couldn't do it. The ambition to do something beyond that realm, the, the, the realm of sweet for children, came up later.
0: Have you ever revisited those stories, those children's stories to see what you thought about them? No with... no,
1: no <laughs> no, I destroyed them. Oh, you my did. my niece was who adored them was very upset with me, but um that's what I did.
0: well what what tell us a little bit about the circumstance of of writing and publishing your first story the first your first Diane williams story as 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 we know it
1: That would be hard to track. I'm not I think anything I write would be a Diane Williams story. The first story I had published was in a scent Magazine. Dan Curley was the editor. I've told this story before about that first publication, but it was very all very thrilling. I sent him a story and he sent back a single spaced review of it that ran maybe two, three pages of, of, of uh, a critical review of commentary. And he said, you've managed to interest me in a thoroughly objectionable woman. Maybe he even said repugnant. <laughs> but he, and he said, if you will take into account my editorial suggestions and send it back to me, I'd like to publish it. It isn't. It, it doesn't appear in any of my collected works or books. But that was my first published story, and probably the most thrilling publishing episode of my life. Mm-hmm.
0: And one of your teachers at the University of Pennsylvania was Philip Roth. That's true. Um, any does anything jump to your mind when when you think of that time having him as a teacher? If you were to uh, shed light on that experience for people?
1: Hmm. Well, we've read wonderful works. It's all very foggy. He was quite a g- glamorous and uh, a figure, very um, serious and formal. And we read, I remember we w- read uh, Madame Bovary, and we read um, John Cheever, and we read F- Franz Kafka, and... He spoke a lot about desire, and I was—he was also at that time, although I didn't know it, writing Portnoy's Complaint. But I—I I remember looking at him and thinking, what a dignified person he was, and the—and uh, then thinking about the raucous and 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 crazy writing that he was doing, and and the the uh, fascinated by that dignified, elegant, scholarly man and, and the work he was producing.
0: Hmm. Well, maybe this is a good time to hear some of your prose. I, I picked out two stories that maybe we could start with. One was is
1: ore, and the other, Revision. Sure. Or A generally reliable woman was pestering the seed, or is it called a pit, that she had noticed was blotchy. The reliable woman at work in her kitchen observed privately to herself, for no reason she knew of, that the pit had been discolored by avocado-colored markings. The woman was using her fingers to wrench the pit out from the center of the ripe fruit. The pit was not coming along willingly. No, this is not about childbirth. The surprise is that anyone as reliable as she is had not had plenty of experience wrenching pits. The pear's pit, this is an avocado pear pit, was not of a like mind of hers, like, What is the matter with you, Pitt? What is the matter with her very reliable husband, who could not extract this woman, his wife, from their home? The wife had been making her husband miserable for years, being the unbudgable type. I'd say time for a change. In their secret life, the husband and the wife then sought the usual marital excavations, their aim being to meet their troubles with equanimity. For starters, they agreed. They agreed how excellent their sexual satisfactions together were— how much more reliably attainable these satisfactions were, more now than ever had been the case before, now that every other aspect of their life together they admitted was so unsatisfactory and such extreme. No, 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 no. This discussion never occurred. The husband and the wife no longer had the means to conduct such a high-level discussion. These people are annoying, you know how annoying to me, as annoying as it was to see for myself last night at twilight one bright sparkling spot in the sky that did not move, it did not get bigger or brighter, or smaller, or dimmer, and for all intents and purposes it is stuck there as I am. The Revision You should not read this. It is too private. It is the most serious. It is even too serious for me. I should make something of this. Here's the best part. When he said to me, come here, that was the very best part of my life so far. In the doorway to his bathroom was where I was. It was where I was when I asked him, are you peeing? He said, no, but now I am. He was seated to do the peeing, so it would not be any problem to do it facing me. I didn't even hear it, the peeing, if he peed. Well, why? Why can't all of it be dirty parts, every part a dirty part, or quickly leading to another dirty part? The part where he just put himself into my mouth, or the part when he said, "'You you looked!' I can't remember how he said I looked to him with that part of him in my mouth, but he jiggled on my jaw. He said, open up before he went ahead and he peed. Oh, that's how babies could be made.
0: We've been listening to Diane Williams read from the collected stories of Diane Williams so you have one story in your first collection that you've brought up many times in conversations called pornography. And you you've said in general that the response of your family to you becoming a writer, wasn't a very positive one that your dad thought you were possessed by the devil. And, and he wanted to know what your husband thought of the stories, but the story pornography, it sounds like made you worried about yourself and you showed it to friends. Um, worried that it was evil that you were, might be going to hell so i was i was curious if you could talk about the horror of of producing this story one that seems to en- endure as you've as you've talked about your writing in general uh, over the course of years of interviews
1: i wanted to give myself permission to say anything And to some extent, that's what that story was, an experiment in in non-censorship. And so it was also very exciting, I remember. I didn't have an ending for it. I remember wandering about doing my suburban errands and experiencing the sight of a chipmunk. The, the way a chipmunk will stagger around, um, but running toward me and then running away, and how that moment was a thrilling moment, to think, that's my ending. Uh, so I remember what it was like to make that story. I remember how the story uh, what the catalyst for that story was. I was meeting a friend for lunch, and she was late, and she came to the table with this tale of a car crash and the little old man and all of that. Um, and I remember the riding around in the little suburb that I lived and seeing these the ambulance and the little bodies being <laughs> carried off from... Um, play yards and all of it was none of it was made up um, and also the the trauma of my son taking off on his bicycle when he was too young to do that it's all still very vivid um, and how it ended up was a big shock to me and it did create horror, a sense of horror, and I, because because it it seemed almost as if what I had experienced was the ideal way, or what I would imagine be the ideal way to to compose a story, Um, I didn't want to relinquish it, and I thought I had something important but I was fearful about it and didn't think I really knew the answer and had to consider whether I would put it into the world believing it might have destructive power. And my answer was yes. <laughs> <laughs> when, you've said, when you've said before
0: that your orientation to your writing is amoral and that the natural condition of the psyche you believe is, is probably amoral. Is that pointing to your desire to do an uncensored piece that yes. allows the freedom of your imagination? Yes.
1: Because I think amoral feels anyway, to me it feels a, uh, immoral. So it's, it's, it's hard to bear, but I think it's, it's, it's my duty <laughs> to to um, to permit myself to work in the in what I would describe as the wilderness
0: so so speaking of the wilderness and also of this surprise that this story created, this horror that it created, even though all of its individual components were known to you. so you, you here you can tell you can walk us through the various components of your life that end up in this piece that are all known. Mm -hmm. And yet at the end, there's a sense of shock for you, which seems to imply that you're not starting with a grand plan, that something about the methodology of taking these life experiences is allowing for, or hoping for surprise. Right. Uh, So would you be able to walk us through maybe one of the ways in which, uh, Diane Williams' story gets gets written in that fashion, so I don't know if you can, but I, I'm curious about what what the methodology might be, or a methodology mm. among many methodologies. Yes, there
1: are many methodologies. I I look back on the composition of the this particular story that we're discussing as being particularly um, engaging and satisfying, and well, interesting it sticks out because there aren't that many stories that of that kind for me. Um, I'm always wishing there'll be one, but more often than not, anyway, in present time, it's uh, an experience of scrounging around uh, for objects and feeling that don't appear to be of of great value or, or importance. They don't seem to be calling out to be uh, featured or uh, trumpeted about. So taking a lot of um, innocuous material and making something of it, stray bits that don't fit together. The, the, the story pornography had, to my mind, elements that did fit together. And, um, and they all had a kind of shuddering quality to them. They all they all were packed and full of pressure. Mm. But for the most part, these stories are not worked from such elements, so the, the labor is, is, is much more intensive.
0: And is the labor then, in a sense, creating the pressure out of things that don't, don't come with it?
1: um yes or 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 discovering the the what's latent in there that I didn't see hmm. um but when we were talking about language, it's really the words that that create the 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 uh experience so that's what I was trying to talk about earlier what words one puts together in what order it's not unlike making what i presume is ma- like making music. I think it's been said that most artists think of music as being the, the sort of ideal art form. The words have to create the experience. It's not, it's not the experience that, that brings forward the, the artwork.
0: Your your editorial staff at Noon interviewed you recently in the Paris Review about your unusual art collection at home mm-hmm. because they, they sensed that some of your sculptures, like ones made out of broken dishes, had some affinity to some sensibility uh, or their sensibility of you as an editor and a writer. Mm-hmm. And a, a couple of things that jumped out to me I you know, wanted to ask you about. In that interview, you talk about a Yugoslavian artist mm-hmm. who, after a hard day's labor on a farm, would randomly choose a tube of paint, and whichever color his hand happened to fall upon, it's what he would use that day. Mm. And then you, you similarly, you say that you, you sew at night while you watch the news, mm-hmm. and you allow yourself to create accidents that you don't pay attention closely enough mm-hmm. intentionally to allow for accident or chance. And I, right. I wondered if because these stories and the way you're describing your methodology it sounds it sounds like there's a lot of labor and and it's they're highly crafted but is there is there anything that you do like your sewing or like this Yugoslavian artist that is also sort of you're leaving the door open to accident in a willful sense
1: yes um, i can talk about one experience i had writing very early on that was extremely useful uh, and exciting. And I think about it a lot. I It was the early days, and I was struggling. But I'm still struggling. But nonetheless, I was struggling. And I wrote something that was very flat and lifeless. And I was discouraged. So these were the days ahead of computers. In my training as an editor, what we did was we cut and paste, but this is literal. You would take a scissors and you would cut up a manuscript and you would use paste and, uh, and patch it all back together again in the way that you felt improved it. So with my manuscript, what I did was I literally cut up all the sentences into strips. I had strips of paper, and then I just sort of flopped them around without paying any mind to how they landed, and rearranged them and pasted it all up and retyped it. And I was absolutely fascinated because it was... Who knows how it might have affected others, but I thought it was absolutely exciting. And, um, And it was a lesson... (laughs) which sometimes when I'm working now, if something is dull as dirt, I might look at it and look at the last sentence that I've written and see whether I could just uh, put that, just work backwards. The last sentence is the first. The second to last sentence is the second, and work all the way back. And these sorts of games to, to keep myself interested um, they sound deliberate, but but actually they're creating a lot of chance and accident. And it can make a boring day's work interesting to me, but it can also create um, combinations and connections that I might never have thought of on my own.
0: To return to your, your statement, the sentence cannot be overemphasized, mm-hmm. uh, and th- the whole phrase being that you said, the sentence cannot be overemphasized, neither can a fragment of a sentence or any syllable of a word. The writer either exploits the language for maximum effects or she does not. Missed opportunities are there regardless. This this makes me think of one of my, perhaps my favorite writing essay, uh, The Sentence is a Lonely Place by Gary Lutz. Oh, yes, that's a great essay. Yeah, and um, the way he he talks about sentences there feels very much in a kindred spirit to that quote of yours. But he also talks about stressed versus unstressed syllables.
1: Absolutely.
0: (laughs) All of that. Assonance and alliteration, and it really feels like it's a lesson in poetics for prose writers.
1: Absolutely.
0: Um, And he discusses books by certain writers that, in his words, recognize the sentence as the one true theater of endeavor, as the place where writing comes to a point and attains its ultimacy. And one thing that the writers he discusses have in common is that they've all studied under Gordon Lish. But what's remarkable about this to me is if we think of these writers, uh, Sam, whether it's Sam Lipside or Noy Holland or Amy Hempel or Christine Scott, these writers seem to be very singularly themselves to me. Yes. Um, which makes me think there's something that Lish was doing or teaching that helped one make one's voice more one's own. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know... I wanted to pose that question to you as one mm. of his early students. Do you feel like that rings true and And can you maybe peek behind the curtain for us about what some of that is that draws the voice out the way he, he seems to um, using some of these? I'm, I'm assuming some of these same sentiments as Gary Lutz is pointing out, but in a way that doesn't make people more the same, but makes them more themselves and some. Mm. Mm. some way. Well,
1: it's probably two different things. It's, you know, one can have a voice and the voice is, is one's own. There's no getting around it. We tend to repeat certain words. We tend to stutter in, in habitual ways. We, um, have our ums and our errs and our, all of, all such habits, repetitions, and um, that's very important to hear in oneself—the one's own uh, mutterings um, and th- thoughts that are um, in language that one can capture. Um, a, a lot of people don't don't know what they sound like, so so th- there's that going on, which would make all of us, if we were to smear that on the page, very different from one another. And then, of course, you can reproduce your own language and it can be um, undramatic and doesn't have power. So then you have to fuss with it the, the way any good poet would fuss with it. So two things are going on there. I, I, when I was teaching, we had some remarkable experiences where uh, I would be. We would be in discussion about a, a student's story, and its troubles were uh, quite um, obvious. Uh, stilted language, clichés, um, and so forth. And I might ask a student, but what did you intend to do here? And then the student would start to speak, saying something like, I, uh, I uh, always, uh, when I think of my father, I, and I would put that on the board. I always, uh, when I think of my father, I, and that for an opening would be brilliant. That would be so exciting, <laughs> and the student would keep talking. Well, oh, oh, but that's not what I mean. Oh, 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 but that's not what I mean. Would go up on the blackboard. So, and then a so. <laughs> uh, somebody might raise their hand and say something, and we'd put that on the blackboard. So we were, we were collecting authentic language. And a lot of it had exciting cadence and repetition and all these things that that make language come alive.
0: There's this way in which Gary Lutz describes what one does when one's working on one sentences that I really loved, where, in a sense, the point is to make the words in a sentence belong to each other. Yes. And he says... The words in the sentence must bear some physical and sonic resemblance to each other, the way people and their dogs are said to come to resemble each other, the way children take after their parents, the way pairs and groups of friends evolve their own manner of dress and gesture and speech. And then in a similar vein, he says, the aim of the literary artist is to initiate the process by which the words in a sentence no longer remain strangers to each other, but begin to acknowledge one another's existence and do more than tolerate each other's presence in the phrasing. The words have to lean on each other, rub elbows, rub off on each other, feel each other up. That's that's a marvelous way to put it. Yeah. But I wondered if is that um, is that process of getting this physical and sonic resemblance of the words within a sentence family um is that partly what you think lish has um yes pointed people towards
1: absolutely absolutely the assonance the consonance, the the uh how does it feel in your throat uh when when you when you say something for instance when you say something just that phrase is a dying phrase it's a killer it's 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 makes you feel kind of sick and sad. So do, do you want to sound like that? Or sometimes you do, but you have to recognize that that's weak, or that's a, um, a sigh on the page. Or, or do you want to scream, or do you want something percussive? Do you want a drum beat? Do you want a soaring feeling? Do you, it's it is musical. This is language is musical. So Gordon Lish used to talk about how in in some of his classes he would send students out with with little tape recorders just to record ambient noise and then and then compose it uh, to make a story. I think that this essay that you're referencing is one of the most important. Um, Essays about such work that I certainly have ever read. I think it's very, very, very important.
0: Hmm. Uh, I was thinking maybe this would be a good time to hear another story. Okay. Um, Time-Consuming Striking Combinations. Oh, goodness. Page 544.
1: Okay. I haven't read that one in a long time. Time Time-Consuming Striking Combinations. The future had not yet produced anything to be happy about. Yes, yes, they saw the bunching up that forms chewed-up gum, an assortment of pretzels, mustachios, and puzzling sex. They are prepared for frosted coffee rings and something terribly wrong, and they have just bumped into each other, which signifies their marriage. There is lip-smacking even if their infant comes up and goes down covered with hair, face, shoulders and arms. The man wears his fawn needle cord coat under the evening dress tailcoat and the pecan brown corded cotton jacket with button attached sleeve extensions under the white coat and the melting woolen black overcoat when their promenade begins to flood. Suitcases have been packed, and crucial packages and cartons are labeled sacred. They can fly and love to shock. Rain clouds are secret, hidden, hidden, secret, 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 hidden, double, and pleasant-faced. The rainy afternoon is not hot, not peaceful, and is perfumed. Pastry is fancy rolls, sponge-type cakes, egg yolk cakes with creamy chocolate frosting served with unusual, very strong, formally filled sandwiches that open with a bang and leap toward a breathtaking eater. The nourishment, flapping, crammed its heavy-scented stuff.
0: We've been listening to Diane Williams read from the collected stories of Diane Williams. I I love that story. (laughs) So I wanted to return to something that you hinted at early in the conversation. So in, in one interview, you said, I view myself as naturally helpless as to speech, capable of bundling it up with cliches and many tired ideas. I have to maneuver syntax and sound aggressively. This is my effort to vivify my life. And, and similarly, you've said there is no pain that can't be made into an object and put on a shelf. These sentiments both seem to suggest a therapeutic or even life-saving aspect to this endeavor of of writing and crafting writing. And I, I wondered if you saw it that way, if you saw the act of, of creating these stories as being therapeutic.
1: Absolutely. I I don't think I would be walking around with any semblance of pride <laughs> or or even or even I don't know I can't come up with the word I don't come up with words unless I work at coming up with words but yes as I was I would say I was in great crisis when I started most of the stories in the, the this that I'm paging through that we have here today um, and every time I felt I had resolved one of them completed one of them I did feel as if I had achieved a tiny bit more power in my life um, and that, that was very real and one of my sons commented on it, that he he saw me becoming more powerful. Hmm. Uh,
0: Was that gratifying to hear? Very. Yeah. Well, you've talked about the expectations that were placed on you and that you had for yourself of becoming a wife and a mother, that women who were University of Pennsylvania grads like you were considered more marriable, that when you worked at Double Day, the men started as editorial assistants, but the women started as secretaries. And then when you had your first child, you developed the conviction that you were disappearing, that you were vanishing, and that the writing became a way to counteract this conviction. I guess, could you speak more to the sense of, of fear of disappearing and vanishing and, and the ways in which writing is the opposite of that?
1: Mm well I think I, I have spoken about this earlier in this in our discussion here about a, the sort of vacancy I experience in my mind and the um the pain that that causes that there's an absence rather than anything else that I'd like not I'd like to resist I'd like to fill with something that that has Texture and 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 some vitality. Sherwood Anderson spoke about this brilliantly, and I read about it in the introduction to one of his story collections. That his reason for writing was to to be able to live his life with 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 uh, being pre being more present in it. to to see better, to hear better, to feel better, to um, engage all of his senses in a a much more um, deliberate and intense way. To to be alive, rather than to um, see things the way we think we're supposed to see them, only hear what we expect to hear, and, 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 and live behind, a, you know, a heavy, a heavy scrim.
0: Well, if we think about writing as a, as a combating against a self-vanishing, I, I think again of the, the Christine Scott uh, description of Noon when she says it is the word no. Noon is really the word no written both ways, mm-hmm. and that informs the aesthetic. That noon would only publish fiction that displayed a writer's no to business as usual prose, and some somehow this feels linked to the to the life saving endeavor. Again, when you say that literature ought not to be the haven for tea time conversation or polite polite speech, that most of us are nearly obliterated by all of our opportunities for polite speech, it makes me think of how so many of your stories take place in in conventional domestic spheres. Mm-hmm. Um, couples in a house, couples in a house with babies and pets. And yet the story seemed to be enacting a no, not just to received language, but on the sentence level, but also to the, do, the domestic business as usual. Uh, and I wondered if that rang true to you that, that perhaps the no is, is, is not just a no on the sentence, but a no on something about the setting where that you're exploding and subverting in in many of these stories, um, and if not, do you have a thought on the, on the conventional domestic setting reoccurrence
1: mm. well i I'm sure that that I was subject to all the fantasies that fairy tales encourage little children to believe in. Uh, a very um, jolly, sweet, comforting mother and a kindly, um, strong father and the um, fire in the fireplace and the uh, fairies who appear to solve problems. So there is that. I don't know that we all grow up with that, likely. Some of us don't hear these tales, but I did but i'm not against happiness i don't aim to explode the prospect of happiness in a house <laughs> <laughs> um but no that i that was certainly thinking... wasn't what i was aiming to do but 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 those the that the romance of that those ideas are, I think, um, they're wonderful, but they're also claustrophobic and and get in the way of, of um, understanding. So those were some of the materials I was working with.
0: You've explicitly said that you don't like to analyze your own work for meaning. And you often have these really brilliant conversation-stopping answers in interviews. For instance, in in the White Review, your interviewer asked the following question. The physical movements, positioning, and intricacies of the culturally and morally assumed quote-unquote private parts of the body are frequently explored in your stories. Bowel movements, vaginas that can talk, dogs wearing condoms, penises that women wish were In them all of the time what draws you to these details and you respond that you write what you can't speak about and i love that answer which um but i also wondered if this resistance to talking about what what a story means is related to your desire for surprise and or the cultivation of mystery and and i don't mean the desire to appear mysterious but Mm -hmm. maybe the desire to appear mysterious to yourself
1: I don't think you can, one can translate a story, uh, or no, should one, because then there's no need for the story. One could just write a translation and pass it around. Uh, there are people who are obviously very gifted at, at having conversations about stories, and I'm not one of them, though. So I just can't do a good job of it, that's why i resist talking about meaning and also i want to stay inspired or stay um intrigued or i love the idea that if i work a little harder i will figure it out and that there's a sort of teetering on the on the brink of understanding understanding that's too difficult for me now but might not be sometime soon. Uh, it's exciting. It's exciting to to be at that point of insight if even if one can't have the insight.
0: Well, when you say I'm trying to get myself to not be a thinking person. I don't want to know what I know. I'm curious about what I don't know. Yes, of I, course. I want to access that mysterious center. And I, I love that you use the word center as the place of mystery. Uh, and I wondered, do you, do you feel like somehow that otherness is seated at the center of self, in a uh, sense, or a mystery?
1: Well, I do think most of us know more than what we realize we know. Anyway, I would like to think that. But it doesn't really feel like that. It just feels like there's a, a, a block of doltishness at the center. <laughs> that one has to combat or, or resist.
0: Laura Sims probably has the most illuminating analysis or thorough analysis of your yes. work. You even mentioned that maybe she understands things about your work that you don't understand. Yes, I'm
1: sure she does.
0: It's a 50-page essay in, in the Review of Contemporary Fiction, Yes, which I really enjoyed. And in it, she suggests that in life, we are often blind to our own thoughts and actions, and that for you, fiction likewise must be blind, an absence of self-analysis of knowledge of one's motives. And I I just was curious if what you thought of that. Do Do you agree that your fiction must be blind, or that the characters in your fiction must be blind?
1: Hmm. Right now I'm tempted to say, no, 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 Laura, I don't, I don't agree with any of that. <laughs> I don't want my characters to be blind. I would love for them to be um, brilliantly knowing, but it's not likely. But it would be great. Yeah. So I, I've... I've <laughs> it would be great. It <laughs> would be absolutely great.
0: <laughs> uh, so I've been trying to think, uh about because i feel like while we have these this this tribe of writers that gary lutz mentions and also i'd say the tribe of writers that you publish in noon that i can see uh the love of the sentence the love of syntax the um the love of the sonic quality of Mm -hmm. of of the musicality of words right but nevertheless i feel like there's a way in which you, you, you share all of those things, for sure. But there's a way in which I feel like you, your work stands apart differently than most of the other people he mentions. And I've, I've been puzzling about why I think that's so. And I, I don't know if you've read Gary Lutz's um, his more recent um, essay called Poetry of the Paragraph.
1: No, I haven't.
0: So he has a new one out looking at paragraphs uh-huh. uh, in 3 a.m., I wanted to ask you about that. When Gary Letts mentions Barry Hanna or Christine Scudder, Sam Lipsight, as much as they're practitioners of the poetics of the sentence, there's also a much more expected uh, narrative Mm -hmm. arc or a sense of being within a a story that is more recognizable. Mm -hmm. Um, But not only do the characters in your stories often not have motives or self-knowledge but it seems like you're subverting almost every notion of plot and narrative in a way that those other writers might not be doing so much. So Ben Marcus says these are some of the most defiantly resistant texts to easy understanding, even while they seduce and beckon as if told in language we don't quite speak or as if they are driven by a deeper code we can't crack. The stories flirt so wickedly with sense but rarely quite build it rarely commit to an entirely coherent scene or moment in narrative time. And it made me wonder if what really defined you was not your devotion to the sentence or not exclusively, but also what happens between one sentence and the next. Mm-hmm. And so in this essay that Gary Letts wrote, the poetry of the paragraph, he's, he um, he says something that I feel like is feels particular particular to you, even though he's not speaking of you. One way to get a paragraph going boldly is to set a single sentence in motion and then let each of the coming sentences challenge or overturn or reformulate the one just before it mm-hmm. in a procedure that is not one of addition or accretion but instead a revisionary process mm-hmm. each new sentence breaks away from or reconstitutes its predecessor mm-hmm. now how does that, how does that strike you In relationship to your writing process, Mm. in terms of not in terms of sentences, but in terms of sentence relation,
1: I think that's that's very wonderful what you just read. I think that it's very exciting to have sentences revising each other or responding in in startling ways. Um, I don't think one could make any any rule about any of that, but that a relation exists. One sentence to the other, of course, is, is crucial, and that there be some tension and some some reason to move be- between sentences and some excitement as you go. But, but I would hate for there to be any kind of formula for doing that. Um, But there's a way in which I feel like,
0: say you read a a Sam Lipside story, Mm -hmm. that there are much more recognizable components of story. Yes. um, Or he's not subverting the same number of aspects of story as you're you're subverting, which made me think about these sentences might be friendly, be making friends with the words with inside one sentence, but maybe the sentences themselves aren't entirely friends with each other.
1: Well, I, I just I don't feel that I could say, this this or that is so about every single one of the stories I've written. I would hope that the stories reveal themselves differently in the sentences. Relations to one another are different story to story, and I have been experimenting in recent time with more narrative because I love narrative. I, R- I don't
0: recent being after after this. Stories no, after this collection. I, no i
1: think some of them in this collection that are new and some in in some of my um, more recent books that there are more i might say traditional narrative tactics i don't know how successful they are but i do love narrative and i don't like bafflement just for the sake of it
0: before we end what is the has the experience been of looking back over this body of work and assembling it for for you has has that in and of itself that retrospective moment created any insight or changed the way your stories are since the collection uh what has the experience been like
1: i view the book I was going to say I view it gingerly, but you can't. I don't think you can view something gingerly. You can touch it gingerly, <laughs> and I wouldn't permit touch it gingerly in any of my stories, or in anybody else's. So I'm already in trouble. But
0: that couldn't be the title of your <laughs> next collection, Touch It Gingerly.
1: <laughs> anyway, I feel gingerly. I feel all gingerly <laughs> about this book. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm very curious to hear what anybody else has to say about it because I don't have that much objectivity. I see that, that that there's perhaps a more kind of traditional coherence in some groups of them and and that others are seem more um seem more eccentric or more more skeletal more crazy um and that through time they they seem to me to get more tame but I, but I don't know so it, it it makes me all it makes me very nervous and and I as I say I would love to have objectivity about it and insight into it but but I don't and I, and I it it makes me too uncomfortable to try for it
0: could we end with uh, a couple more stories sure
1: Comfort. She made assurances that satisfied her ambitions, saw the body interred, spent the rest of the week asking questions, suggesting action. She visited with her family and reminisced. Getting routine matters out of the way, she headed home after buying a grounding plug and ankle wrist weights. She fed the dog and put the boys to bed. Alan didn't go to work. She received a phone call from a woman whose sister had died. She made some of those unequaled assurances, was escorted with the family to the grave. People seemed to respond to her. She talked with them, gave a woman a played-out peck on the cheek. Getting routine matters out of the way, she attained... Riches, social position, power. Studied for an hour or so, cleaned up, took the family to a movie, after which she forecasted her own death with a lively narration that gave her goose flesh. She felt raw, pink, and so fresh. Lord of the Face the fact that she's backlit makes her look ambitious, and she tickles my funny bone. First I thought that her blue eyes on a pink and yellow background looked a bit purblind, but then their general dimension intrigued me. They have a nice design, glare, and they're not generous. It's hard to slot him in. He seemed novice-like uncertain of himself, but he was efficient. She said, I am Diane Williams. They went out to the terrace for a cigarette. Italy itself is very lovely, but as the brightness of the sun hit the terrace, the figure of a six-legged star, a sign for sure, was produced on the blue stone. All six legs of the star were fairly straight. One leg of the star was not exactly the same length as the others. One leg was perfectly straight. Their housekeeper grabbed at her own leg and at the top side of her foot. Their cat was yanked up off of the terrace by a bird of prey and then dropped. For the cat's recovery. There were $5,000 worth of veterinarian bills, and for the housekeeper, a premonition she'd be hit by a car. The star, the cross, the square. A single sign shows the tendency. Can people avoid disaster? Yes. I leave my readers to draw their own conclusions. Some years ago, I was satisfied. Stop. Diane. So many things are clear. Diane was blushing. Her yellow fuzz shows in the sun. She no longer has words of her own and so chooses grunting. Diane, open, contribute, inform. The place. Her brown fuzz, a yellow fuzz over it. The curtains are original. A room contains medical equipment. Diane's an early type, who before arriving in Siena had a day planned for her departure. She had made the arrangements so she'd stay during the spring in Italy as an imaginary character with hope.
0: It's been a pleasure having you on the show, Diane.
1: Oh, thank you. It's been my pleasure. Thank you, David.
0: We've been talking today to Diane Williams about the collected stories of Diane Williams from Soho Press. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO, volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength community radio from Portland, Oregon, found at KBOO.fm. While the Collected Stories of Diane Williams contains over 300 stories, spanning nearly three decades, Diane does have some stories that are newer than the Collected Stories. She reads one of those for us, entitled, With This New Greasiness, for the Between the Covers Bonus Archive. This joins bonus material by Carmen Maria Machado, Viki Now, Laini Zumas, Sheila Hetty, Forrest Gander, and others. All of this can be found at patreon.com the covers. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Ladbrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro. Their album Imre Ladbrog e Sapatita Mi can be found on iTunes, and Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com Barbara Browning